All right, let's turn to Romans chapter 8, please. And we'll also be going to Romans chapter 13. As Denny alluded in his eloquent prayer, Pam and I will be going away for a short stint. Haven't been back to see my sisters for a year or so, so we're going to head down to Florida, where it'll be 80 degrees and sunny next week, so sorry about that. Very, my heart is sad for you. Actually, I like the cold. Uh, the, the older I get, the more I like the winters, but um, I know, it's strange. There are several verses that come to me. I wanna, I'm not going to leave you without definition, nor will I leave you without shepherds. Several, several things that came to mind today. First of all, we were dealing with Galatians. Paul said around verses 4, 17 and 18, he said, it's good to be enthusiastic about a good thing. And the good thing that we're enthusiastic about is the gospel of the grace of God that presents God's love, which is too wide to get around, too in-depth to get under, and too high to get over, the love of Christ. And that's we are excited about it, and rightly so. We're enthused about the horizon of the redemption that is wrought in the cross of Christ, that it's universal, that it's diachronic, that it takes all creation in all of its times and gathers it up in the Son of God, who then commits it to the Father so that God will be all in all. That's our hope. And When I return, I intend to do a whole segment on the life of hope. I intend also by Easter to hopefully, and I've said this before, who knows, the best laid plans of mice and me, to finish up Romans. Romans, however, is only a tiny increment or a small fraction of what we're doing with Paul altogether, all of the writings of Paul. We have just celebrated our ninth year in this place, which I call the Alamo, the place of our last stand, my last stand at least perhaps, the Alamo, and nine years on this past Valentine's Day. So, in a first segment of that time here, we spent a vast amount of time on John, the Gospel, and the Apocalypse of John. I've gotten several reports lately that people have re-established themselves in the Rev the Book series, and they say, they don't, they, could they have been here when they heard it? Because the second time around, they see a progression in which we move to a much larger hope than we ever had before. And so God is pouring out his hope in us. And he is called the God of hope in the last verse of the main body of Romans in 1513. And in the believing that he himself evokes, we experience peace and joy, maximum joy, maximum peace in the Holy Spirit, which is the same as saying we inherit the kingdom of God now. And so we have this, this is where we are now. I intend to do an expanded paraphrase of the entire book of Romans, which will be published, and I hope to have that done by Easter, and I'm looking forward already to being back together with you. In my absence, another verse comes to mind, Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which is the habit of some, and the habit 
that of forsaking the assembling of the saints together leads to a deterioration of hope, and we don't want that to happen. We assume that because we have a lock on the message, which is a false assumption, that we'll always have that confidence, but that confidence can be lost even though our position in Christ cannot be. We assemble ourselves seeing that the day is approaching in which God will be universally manifest what he accomplished in the Christ event. That day is approaching. It's rapidly approaching. It is imminent. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17 together also say that though there is, as we establish from our understanding of the New Testament, one overseeing pastor to every established assembly, there are also several communicators of the word who speak the word. And it says in Hebrews thirteen seven to give way to those who speak the word of God to you. They, they is plural. They are those who must give an account. It even says to obey or yield the right of way to them. And that sometimes challenges us because we may not accept a person's person. We may be partial in some way. But God calls people to speak the word of God. And he has, there's a reason why the men who I have speak in my absence speak while I'm not here. And it's to fulfill those very mandates. And so we will have no, we'll continue to have our regular schedule of Sundays and Wednesdays in the next three weeks. And we will have pastors Brian Messick and Pastor Brown. And we're pulling out of retirement, Pastor Jeff Stewart. And the last time I talked, I've talked to all these men, they're prepped, they're prepared. They have something for you that is of great value and of inestimable value. The last time I talked to Jeff, he had 51 pages of notes. And my counsel was maybe you could reduce it down just a little bit. For, But uh, he's, you got more than that now, right? 80. Okay, well, be pre- bring a sleeping bag. So you got a series ready. All right, well, I'll be calling. I'll be calling on you. He's got a very, he has an invaluable insight on the transfiguration that I've never heard before, and I think he's going to develop it very well. And we also have Emery and Tony ready. Tony, are you ready for a weather forecast? You can't be. I told someone this morning that weathermen are often false prophets, but that's not the case with you. And uh, you see them every night on all three stations. They're telling you false reports about but not Tony. And Emery Persinger, whom I call a pastor without portfolio. And these men will be speaking in my absence. I, my, I urge you to listen to them and to be attentive to their message. And each one has a special message. And I know that. I keep in touch with these guys, and I'm very proud of all of them. I'm proud of this congregation If I had to go to be before the Lord today, I would give an account with joy about you, all of you. And that's, I ain't a false prophet there. Romans chapter 8, I'm going to speak today on a subject. I've accumulated quite a few insights by the grace of God in Romans 8. But today I want to speak of the agona. And this Greek word is A-G-O-N-A. 
You can see familiarly perhaps the word agony there, or agon, as it's called, the A-G-O-N, is often translated as an arena of contention, an athletic contention, a stadium in which there is a contest that involves strenuous activity, but most of all, it's a battlefield. And the agona that I'm speaking about today occurs in what I've called many times, and I want to give more definition to it today, the juncture of the ages, the juncture of the ages, the junction of two ages that are contradictory to one another. The end of one is on the verge of happening. The beginning of another has begun with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But these two ages, one is transient and evil. It's evil in its definition in Galatians 1.4. It's transient in that it's passing. It's not everlasting in its quality or value. And it does not have everlasting or eternal values. It is transient, therefore passing, temporary, and it's evil. Galatians 1.4 compared to... 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Transient and evil. That age came to an end at the cross of Calvary. And I'll explain why it still exists in some form and why we have to be alert to it. The agona in the juncture of the ages is where we find ourselves. We're in this arena. We're in this contest And we're going through various things. And it is God's will that we endure throughout our lives in this world for his glory. And there's a reason why we do. So Romans 8, 14, we've been here before. As many as are led, this refers to the people of Israel by an allusion to Exodus, led out of Egypt led out of slavery, led by the rock that is Christ, by the spirit that breathed upon the Red Sea and split it wide open, speaking of the two divine missions, a people led by the spirit of God out of slavery. So as many as are led, that means governed and guided by the spirit of God are the sons of God. This, in my view, is an allusion to Hosea chapter 2, verse 1 in the Septuagint translation. The sons of God refers to Israel as it is restored eschatologically. It's also called in Galatians six sixteen the Israel of God. As many as are led up out of slavery to the flesh by the Spirit, they are the sons of God presently, currently, right now, in the juncture of the ages. I call it a clashing juncture of the ages, and there's reasons for that. And I'll explain it a little more clearly today. Verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery, small s there, spirit of slavery. This is related to the spirit of this world, the spirit of this age. The Germans call it der Zeitgeist. It's the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience in Ephesians 2.2. We have not received the spirit of slavery. Again, alluding to Israel under the slavery of Egypt of the Pharaoh. We have not received that spirit again or leading to fear. That is again to fear. 
Like the sons of Israel in Egypt under the tyranny of slavery, they feared repercussions from Pharaoh and his armies if they didn't comply to slavery. It took God's divine intervention to lead them up and out. We are the objects of a divine act of grace. And so on the contrary to receiving a spirit of slavery again to fear, you receive the spirit of adoption. Adoption is the privilege that belongs to Israel, according to Romans 9.4. Adoption is something that the whole creation is waiting for us to come into the full rights of our adoption, which will only happen in the resurrection of our bodies. All of creation, the whole sweep of the redemptive work of Christ is found, as we're going to find, in Romans 8, 19 to 23. And we'll see there what it means to have the first fruits of the Spirit. So on the contrary, you receive the Spirit of adoption. That means as the eschatological Israel of God, by whom we cry out to God, the Father, Abba, a most familiar, domestic, intimate term. By the Spirit, the Scripture says, we call God, Father. We call God the Father, Daddy. And by the same Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 3, we call Jesus Lord. It is only by the Spirit that we cultivate this intimate relationship with the Father. It is only by the Spirit that we call Jesus Lord. We don't call Jesus Lord as a religious expression of our piety. We don't make him Lord. He's already Lord. The Holy Spirit causes us to call him Lord. God pronounced us his sons by adoption. He pronounced this. This is his pronunciation of grace. And on the basis of that, he gives us the spirit. So it says we are pronounced by God to be his sons by adoption. And subsequently, he sends the spirit of his son into our hearts, shouting, Abba. To cite the German theologian Gerhard Ebeling again, in the context of Galatians 4.6, you can see the same thing unfolding in a different context in Galatians 4.6. There it says, the spirit of the son cries out in us. Here it says, we cry out, which says that our entire relationship to God is divinely enabled. It's related to the Holy Spirit. Without that, there is no relationship to the father or the son but by the Spirit. So Ebeling, in the context of Galatians 4, 6, says, receiving the Holy Spirit does not make us sons. It is our being made sons that enables us to receive the Spirit. That's the order here in Romans 8, 14 to 17. And then with regard to Romans 8, 14 to 17, which he says might seem to contradict Galatians 4, 6. He says, this might seem to contradict Romans 8, 14 to 17, which is closely related to Galatians 4, 6. Even here, however, that is in Romans where we are, being filled with the Spirit does not constitute the ground of our being God's sons, but rather the ground of knowing that we are God's sons sons 
The spirit is given to us that we may know that we are God's sons. Knowing is the theological term called epistemology. When we know that we are the sons of God, we go through an epistemological transformation. And so knowing that we are God's sons is the effect of the transformation that we undergo when we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God for the purpose of the renewing of our mind, the renovating of our thinking, the the radical transformation of our thinking. In Romans 8, Paul stresses the strong relationship between the spirit of God and our sonship, our ability to call God the Father, Abba, Daddy, Lord, God, our Father, by the Spirit is the single most important sign of our sonship. It isn't a spectacular phenomena like miracles or glossolalia, speaking with foreign or angelic languages, but by the very unspectacular phenomenon of our being enabled to call God the originating source of our adoption and our birth from above to call him father. Once more, Ebeling says this, the use of Abba as a form of address in prayer goes back to the earliest Christian community. That is why it was preserved in its original Aramaic. It is highly probable that the usage goes back to Jesus himself. For Paul... Abba is a fundamental sound in the language of the spirit. It's interesting that it involves alpha and beta, A and B, the first two letters of both the Greek and the English alphabet. It's a fundamental sound in the language of the spirit. And then he says this, and this is what really hammered home to me. In it, weakness and the power of the spirit come together. Weakness and the power of the spirit. The infant crying daddy, the child crying Abba, the son saying father indicates great dependence, but it also indicates great freedom. But he says this, and I'll say it again because I want to play on it for a little bit. In it, weakness and the power of the spirit come together in a manner paralleling what he calls the Christological polarity, and I'll hammer that out for you, of asthenia and dunamis, weakness and power. The Christological polarity means that when Jesus Christ descended as the Son of Man and took on humanity, he experienced the strengthlessness of an infant. He experienced the weakness of a man in conflict and in battle. But he also experienced the dunamis, the power of the spirit, especially in his resurrection. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 13, 3 and 4, it says that Christ was crucified in weakness. And yet he lives by the power of God. Paul then said, we are also weak in him. Weakness, asthenia. But we live by the power of God. Toward you. The power of God that we live in is the omnipotent power of love. So we are weak in Christ. That's the first lesson to me 
as a communicator of the word. We are weak in Christ. That means that our present weakness is part of our participation with Jesus, who is crucified in weakness. But at the same time, in a sort of a paradox, a seeming contradiction, even now, we live by the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the power in which I speak. This is the power in which we communicate. This is the power in which we converse. This is the power in which we serve one another by love. This is the power in which we realize that the church does not exist for itself, but for the world for whom Christ died. We do not exist for ourselves, but we exist for the one whom God raised from the dead. We do not live in a lifestyle of curvature within ourselves where it's all about ourselves. We live in which that curvature is turned around and directed toward God in worship and service in the spirit. And the church as a whole recognizes as the Israel of God that even as Israel was intended to be a, an anticipation with the spirit residing in the Shekinah glory residing in its midst an anticipation of a restored universe. So the church recognizes that it exists not for itself, but for the world for whom Christ died. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is God's omnipotent love. This is the power by which we live toward one another. We serve one another by love, according to Galatians 5.13. We do so in the intentionality or the intention infused in us by the Spirit and in the energy of the Spirit. When I'm weak, then I'm strong, is the paradox of Christian living in this agona at the juncture of the ages, the clashing juncture of two ages. When I am weak, then I am strong. It's the blessed paradox of our livingness. I say blessed paradox because when we are weak, it is precisely then that the power that raised Jesus kicks in, ignites, starts the ignition. The Christological polarity that the theologians call it of asthenia and dunamis or weakness and strength. That which was in Christ, weakness and strength, weakness in crucifixion, strength in resurrection is the paradox of our existence. It's the seeming contradictoriness of our livingness in the juncture of two opposing ages. In our weakness, we sometimes feel that we cannot be so greatly favored and loved by God. In our weakness, we feel so often that it can't be that we would be so favored and so loved by God. It seems quite the opposite sometimes in our weakness. But it says in Romans 8.16, the spirit comes to our side. He's called parakletos. Parakletos means called alongside. He's called alongside us. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. His breath is closer than our own breath to ourselves. His closeness to us is closer than we are to ourselves. 
He is closer to our real selves than we are to our real selves. Often we are not our real selves and we struggle to be somebody or somebody else. Only when we come to who we are created in Christ Jesus do we end that struggle and find peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then we experience, I said experience, the kingdom of God. Even now, we inherit, read, experience, the kingdom of God. The spirit testifies with our spirit, says Romans 8. Testifies with our spirit. The word spirit there means our innermost being, the place we hardly ever tap because we're busy being various roles in life or fulfilling various expectations of others in life. The spirit is the innermost place. Some people tap it and they become artists. They become creative. They become stunning in their productions in life. And it's because they've tapped this inner being. But there's nothing like the spirit tapping our spirit. The spirit testifies with our spirit which Proverbs twenty twenty seven calls the candle of the Lord. The human spirit is the candle. The Lord lights it. It's lit. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. What does this mean? It means that the spirit makes us know something. He makes us assured that we are God's own children. He testifies with our spirit. And that, again, is the innermost part of our private, personal being. That we are God's children. That's our identity. As we call God the Father by the most intimate, paternal term. So here, the Spirit's relationship to and with us is of the deepest personal kind I couldn't stress it enough we often become alienated from our true selves and we try to be someone else or we try to be that which others expect us to be or are used to us being the spirit always knows however the real you in Christ you are created in Christ Jesus and you're called a Poema, a masterpiece, a masterpiece in God's gallery. The spirit always knows the real you in Christ, the new you, the real you. In that sense, the spirit who is said to search the deep things of God, if he searches and knows the deepest intimacies of God, how much more would he know? And search your deepest, most personal intimacies, the being that you are. In that sense, the spirit who searches the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.11, knows you better than you know yourself. You didn't just wake up someday and say, hey, I'm a child of God. If you know you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit made you know that. The Holy Spirit knows you better than you know yourself. He is closer to you than you are to yourself. 
Sometimes it might even be him speaking to you when you think you're talking to yourself. When the things that are said are good things. He's closer to you than you are to yourself. He will always deal with the real you. As created in Christ Jesus, who is reality. When you realize who you are as a masterpiece of God in Christ Jesus, the effect of that realization is peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. His intention in showing you who you are and making you know who you are is that you will come to a peace and a joy that the world can't give, the world has never been able to give, drugs can't give, alcohol can't give, sex can't give, opioids can't give, success can't give, achievement can't give, and self-realization, as the world defines it, could never give. Marriage can't give it. Relationships can't give it. Human relationships can't give it. The peace I'm talking about is the peace that Jesus is and the joy that he conveys and transfers right from his heart to your heart. I've spoken these things, he said in John 15, 11, that you, my joy will be in you. And his joy is the fellowship that he has with the Father in the Spirit. And that your joy, as a result, will be complete, maximum. When you realize who you are as a masterpiece of God in Christ Jesus, the effect is not only peace and joy, but it's peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The struggle to become somebody. I could have been somebody. Could have been a contender. <laughs> Isn't that a movie line? Uh, never mind. The spirit engenders us, in us, an assurance that cannot be conveyed by a human preacher or a teacher or an apostle or a prophet or an evangelist or a pope or a cardinal or a priest, but only by God. It can only be transferred to us, an assurance that cannot be conveyed by a human being, but by the Spirit of God, also known as the Spirit of the Son of God. The experience of the Holy Spirit is our present experience of the kingdom of God. Now. For the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is an experience of the Holy Spirit that involves the fruit of the Spirit, which is peace and joy. Righteousness there is another word with love, for love in Galatians 5.23. It is God's intention to give you the kingdom to experience. And I could say that. I could echo the Father's words. I could echo Jesus' words today. And he is speaking in me. And he is speaking in us when we converse in the power of the Spirit. And say, don't be afraid, little flock. It is the Father's desire and delight to give you his kingdom. And that means to give it to you to experience his kingdom. Even now, even in this contradictory 
thing called human history, even in this clashing juncture of two ages. One age is called the night, and it's almost over. The other is called the day, and the dawn of it has just spilled over the hill called Golgotha. But they exist together. They run parallel to each other. They contrast with each other. That's the kind of, if you understand that that's what's going on, you'll be able to handle the contradictions of life much, much better. And you'll be able to be equipped for battle much, much better. And you'll be able to face down whoever Goliath is in your life and say the battle belongs to the Lord. And for us, that means it's already won. The only problem is those defeated enemies haven't left the field. They haven't dropped their sword and shield. They haven't stopped being loud mouths like Goliath. And they are continuing to throw their javelins and their accusations. But the battle is won. Live like it. Act like it. Think like it. Talk like it. So, the Spirit engenders in us this. And therefore, we have an understanding of the divine mission of the Son of God. And then the divine mission of the spirit that's attached to the divine mission of the son of God. They are two divine missions. The father sent his son. Galatians 4, 4 in the fullness of time. He enters history born of a woman born under the law, experiencing all the contradictions we do experiencing the contradictions of the human condition in Adam. He sent his son. To redeem us. He also sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The heart of hearts of our being. Crying. Abba. Father. These two missions are one divine invasion into this evil age. To set everything right that's gone wrong. I'll say that again. This is apocalyptic thinking. This is. The transformation of my mind has produced an apocalyptic view of history. The two divine missions, that of the Father sending the Son, that of the Father sending the Spirit into this evil age, the two divine missions together constitute a single saving rescue mission of God into the evil age to rectify and set right all that's gone wrong in all of creation in all of its times. Romans 8, 17 then says, and since we are children, not if, but since, he's already declared we are children of God. Since we are children, we are also heirs, heirs of God. That thought isn't completed until 832. God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him over for judgment on behalf of us all. How shall he not with him give us freely all things to be heirs of God is to be heirs of everything. Because he's given us his son. That's heirs of the universe. So we are heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ. Now here's where people think there's an if that could be so or not so, if we are suffering. And so people try to do the best they can to get in suffering. I don't know about you. I don't want to suffer. I don't like to suffer, and I don't choose to suffer. I choose to believe, and that involves suffering. It's inevitable that suffering comes. I choose to preach 
that there is no cause of justification except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That invites persecution. It, and I heard I recently again, uh, a friend of mine is listening to the messages, and he said that a friend of his heard that he's under this heretic from Pennsylvania who's teaching that everybody gets saved. And then he talked about another friend that he's listening to Revelation and blown away, and now he believes the message of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. I don't choose to suffer. I don't choose adversity. But I choose to preach Christ and him crucified and nothing else, and that may involve suffering. Plus, we have the suffering that goes with being human beings. Sickness, loss, delays, ruining relation, ruins of relationship sometimes, difficulties that seem to remain with us, griefs that are in our hearts sometimes for the duration, it seems, of our lives. Unresolved things. That's all part of humanity. Then there's the extra stuff that comes with representing Jesus Christ in this world. And so it says, seeing that we are suffering. It doesn't say if we suffer. The, the, the present active here is an indicative. That means we are suffering. If you're human, you're suffering. If you're Christ, Christ's children, if you're the children of God, awakened to faith, you are suffering in an extraordinarily different kind of way than just the regular suffering of not only humanity, but creation. All of creation is sighing and groaning, even screaming in birth pangs for the revelation. That's the apocalypse of the sons of God. See, sons of God isn't done until we get to Romans 8, 23, and then it's not done. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the sons of God, the apocalypse of the sons of God, means the revelation of who we are in Christ, minus sin, minus these bodies of sin, minus corruption in perfect glory. That's what all creation's waiting for. Believe me, creation isn't waiting for a green new deal. A green new deal is anti-creation besides being anti-creator and anti-humanity. Creation is waiting for the real ecologists to come along, resurrected children of God, who will really take care of the planet. And so Romans 8, 17, since we are children, we are also heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, seeing that we are suffering with him. There's the paradox of weakness in which we suffer and power in which we serve. We're joint heirs with Christ, seeing that we are suffering in order also to be glorified with him. Please notice here the participation with Christ's sufferings and with his entry into glory. In the stroll that Jesus had down Emmaus Road with some slow-witted disciples, they were sad. It's okay to be sad, but they were sad for the wrong reason. They thought their Messiah was crucified and stayed in the grave. And so Jesus went up and walked alongside him, just like his spirit does with us. He says, what's all this you guys are talking about, and why are you so sad? Well, didn't you hear? What are you, a stranger in Jerusalem? Haven't you heard that someone came on the scene named Jesus who claimed to be our Messiah and they crucified him? 
We have the right to be sad. Imagine it's the resurrected Christ walking with them. They didn't recognize him. He said, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. Don't you think Christ had to suffer? Just like all the prophets have told you. Don't you understand what all the prophets have said? That Christ had to suffer to enter his glory? To suffer and to enter his glory. And then he began with Moses and went all the way through the prophets and the Psalms, the whole what we call the Old Testament, showing all those things testified of him. Jesus, that's the mystery that now pops in the New, in the Old Testament. And so here we're reminded of Messiah's sufferings. Luke 24, 25 to 27, read it and meditate on it. He ought to have suffered. He was predicted to suffer and to enter his glory. Or we could even say that Messiah would suffer in order to enter his glory that he would enter his glory via suffering. So the term, of, the term inheritance has also emerged here. And it already had in Galatians. Paul wrote Galatians before he wrote Romans. Romans, he seems to have calmed down a little bit. So I'm going to back into Galatians and get all hot under the collar. Just in time for summer, maybe. Paul uses a phrase twice, shall not inherit, shall not inherit. The interpretive phrase for shall not inherit the kingdom of God in Galatians 5.21 is interpreted where he says it in Galatians 4.30. In Galatians 4.30, he says, but what does the scripture say? Throw out the slave and her son. For the son of the slave will never inherit with the son of the free woman. Now, Paul did some very daring exegetical moves in this because he rendered the word slave woman Hagar, and he equated that with the Jerusalem church who were claiming that you had to be circumcised to be saved and to fulfill the works of the law to be justified. He turned that whole thing around. God had great tenderness toward Hagar, incidentally, in Genesis 16. That's one of the most moving revelations I've ever seen. Throw out the slave and her son. You know what Paul is saying there? And we're going to find out. Throw out these teachers that have invaded this church and who do not preach the gospel of the grace of God and justification by the death of Jesus Christ. Throw them out! Like Abraham was told to throw out the slave woman and her child. That didn't mean God wasn't going to take care of them, of course. They shall not, they will not, she will not inherit with the son of the free woman. Inherit what? The context is inherit the promise given to Abraham, which is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. In other words, you're not going to inherit the experience of the kingdom of God by the works of the law. Neither will you inherit it by the works of the flesh which are the ultimate result of being under the law. In Galatians 5.21b, Paul says, I tell you in advance as I told you before. When did he tell him before? In 4.30. The slave, that is the person that's still under slavery to the flesh because the law can't justify, it can only put you under the flesh. They will not inherit 
the kingdom of God. The, that means they will not experience it. It means shall not experience. It doesn't mean will never inherit, but shall not experience. I tell you in advance, Paul says, Galatians 5.21b, as I told you before in 4.30, those who practice such things, the works of the flesh, and you know what he does there? He's very slick. He equates the works of the flesh, which are listed, a terrible catalog of vices in 5.19 to 21. He equates them with the works of the law that people assume will justify them. Neither way can you experience the kingdom of God with that. That's what he's saying. And so I tell you in advance, as I told you before, telling you now, 521, what I told you before in 430, those who practice such things means those who are under slavery to the flesh and trying to be justified by the works of the law end up doing the very things that the law prohibits. He says that in the same thing in Romans 7. I try to do good. Evil is present with me. I end up doing the evil that I hate. I try not to commit adultery by the strength of the flesh. I end up committing the very act that I hate and don't want to commit because I'm under the power of the flesh. The power of the spirit is the only truly sanctifying power. And so I tell you in advance, as I told you before, those who practice such things, the works of the flesh, which he equates with the works of the law, shall not experience or inherit the kingdom of God. I'll be fanning that out in Galatians. Don't despair. So in Galatians 4.30, at the close of an allegory, contrasting Hagar with Sarah, and he relates Hagar with the opposing preachers and the church of Jerusalem, with Sarah, the free woman, and the gospel that Paul preaches in the churches in Galatia, he relates them and their respective children. And then he emphasizes that the children of the slave woman, he equates to those who are under slavery to the law, shall not inherit with the children of the free women, woman, emphasizing the fact that the inheritance of the blessing of the spirit, the inheritance of the blessing of the spirit is only by promise and therefore by grace and by God's own action and not by the works of the law. And that, again, Galatians 5.21, deals with the same idea, only this time, the kingdom of God, the spirit of God as an experience, and the kingdom of God as an experience cannot be had if we're attempting to be justified by the works of the law in the energy of the flesh or by any human action in the power of the flesh. And so, God's intent is that we experience the kingdom of God and so that we walk in the spirit. The inheritance of the kingdom of God, listen to this one, the inheritance of the kingdom of God is the believer's experience of the Holy Spirit, which is not had by the works of the law, or by the works of the flesh. They're all in one category. Paul, in fact, even says, you observe days under the Jewish calendar, days and dietary restrictions. Funny, you used to observe days and dietary restrictions when you were worshiping idols as Gentile pagans. And you know what he said? They're both the same. 
You're going back to the same idolatry by going into justification by the works of the law and observing holy days and observing these new moons and Sabbaths. You're doing the same thing you did before when you worshiped creation and worshiped the idols and the, the powers of the present age, the elemental spirits of the age. Same thing. Paul doesn't define sin as being a lawbreaker. He defines sin as being one who fulfills the law with the intention of being justified by it. It's all the same. So we walk by the Spirit. Those who are under the control of the flesh, all caps, are the same as those under the control of the law, which the flesh has rendered impotent in Romans 8.2 and which sin has hijacked. And so, the inheritance of the kingdom of God is the believer's experience of the Holy Spirit, which is not had by the works of the law or by the works of the flesh, but only by the freedom of grace. The freedom of grace. Those who are under the control of the flesh are the same as those who are under the control of the law, which the flesh weakened and sin commandeered. So the opposite of the ongoing disaster of Galatians 5:19 to 21, where Christians become cannibals of one another and devour one another in their competitions with one another and criticize one another, judge one another, slander one another, make one another's ideology a reason to criticize others. They bite and devour one another. Instead of that, we have serving one another by love. Instead of the disaster outlined that's ongoing, an ongoing disaster in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, instead of that is the ongoing experience of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, which is the same as inheriting the kingdom of God even now. So in closing, with Romans eight seventeen to 18, a theme has arisen. Suffering, it's a gift. Philippians 1.29, it's not only been given to us to believe. What? Yeah, our faith is a gift. Our faith is a gift. It has not only been given to us to believe, but also to suffer for Christ's sake. To suffer, a gift. When the apostles were flogged by the Jews in Jerusalem who rejected the gospel, they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the kingdom of God. Instead of reacting, as I used to do, to slanderers, I'm starting to be grateful. If the slander is directed toward the message of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, then I rejoice to be counted worthy to suffer for the kingdom of God, for Christ's sake. So should you. Suffering is introduced along with glory, bringing to mind Luke 24, 25 to 27 and Luke 24, 44, in which Jesus interpreted the prophets as having spoken of the sufferings of Messiah and his glory the suffering and his glory. He suffered and then entered into glory, or we could say he entered into glory via suffering. 
That encompasses the downward and then the upward trajectory of the Son of Man. No man has ever ascended to heaven, but he who first descended. There was a downward trajectory of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the preexistent Son of God. And it was a downward trajectory that took him all the way to death, burial. And then his upward trajectory began with resurrection and then glorification and exaltation at the right hand of the Father. We are now primarily identified with him in his downward trajectory. Life offers a lot more suffering than it does glory right now. And if you have glory right now, it may be that you should be careful that you're not glorying in the flesh. Whole lot of that going on right now. All kinds of human programs. Maximize your human potential. Preachers even say it. Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. So then, he came down from heaven before he ascended back to heaven. And before he ascended, he was lifted up on a cross like Moses lifted a serpent up in the wilderness so that whoever would look would be healed. Whoever would look would live. And every eye will look and everyone will live because he descended first. By suffering, during the course of the juncture of these two ages, all of creation, including all of human beings, but especially that part of humanity, with the first fruits of the Spirit, that will be coming up soon. Especially that part of those of us who have the first fruit of the Spirit follow the same pattern that Christ followed of suffering followed by glory. The juncture of the ages constitutes an agona. This juncture of two ages that began with Christ's crucifixion and resurrection constitutes an agona. You're never going to make life better in this world. This world is not going to get better. Despite Marxist utopian philosophies, it will not get better. The problem with Marxism is that in trying to leave no one behind, it has to kill 120 million people for the, pro- for the program to work. God's program doesn't leave behind anybody, including those that Marxism killed. Because there's a thing called resurrection coming. God's program doesn't leave behind any ethnicity, any race, any minority, any majority. It does not leave behind any social class or caste. It does not leave behind the environmentally or physically handicapped. It does not leave behind the victims or the perpetrators. It sweeps up everything into a love that you can't get over because it's too high, can't get around because it's too wide, and you can't go under it because it's way too deep. Thinking of Elvis's song, I heard it on the way in. So high, you can't get over it. Yeah, that one. Now then, every Sunday morning on Sirius XM, Elvis sings hymns for six hours. Some of them I have to turn off and go back to the Beatles channel because they're used to smoke and chew and, you know, that kind of thing. But that's a good one. Anyways, forgive my meanderings. The juncture of the ages 
is an arena of battle. You can't get away from it. The battle is an important feature of apocalyptic theology. So one reason why we gather together, assemble together, in fact, it's an important reason for our congregating on a regular basis, is to be briefed for the battle plans and prepared for the battle and encouraged and heartened in it because it's easy to get discouraged, disheartened, and stripped of our courage in the battle. But in this battle, when we're heartened and encouraged, we say the battle is the Lord's. That was David's battle cry as he faced Goliath in 1 Samuel seventeen forty-seven. Before he threw down, he faced down Goliath and said, the battle is the Lord's. For us, that means it's already won. But the adversaries haven't left the theater of war, and they're slow to admit defeat or lay down their arms. What eschatologically occurred and is finished has yet to be historically manifested and displayed. We live, then, in that contradictory place called the juncture of the ages. What is it? You've heard me refer to it many times. It's one of the main features of Romans. It's the juncture of the ages. I call it the clashing juncture of the eons because of the contradictory meeting of two ages, one transient and evil, another everlasting and eternal. These two ages is where this clashing juncture is where you live and die. And you know what Paul even did in 2 Corinthians 7, 3? He said, it's the place in which we die and live. Talk about a contradiction. We live and die. Yeah, we die and live. You died and your life is hid with Christ in God. We die and live in this age. We live and die in history. We die and live in eschatology. We are alive in Christ. And therefore, because this contradictory meeting of two ages is where we live and die, we're often perplexed. It is, guess what? Normal to be perplexed. Paul said we are always, many times perplexed, but we're not forsaken by God, but we're, we can't figure stuff out. It's a contradictory age. And so to define it, I went to some of the lexicons to define the juncture of the ages. A prominent place to begin is Hebrews 9.26 with the word suntelea. And I'm going to close with this. S-U-N-T-E-L-E-I-A. Suntelea. That means the culmination or the combination of two ages. And so it says in Hebrews 9.26, suntelea. But now, once and for all, at the juncture of the ages, suntelea. And then he talks about aeons. Suntelea. Christ appeared, or Christ was manifested, to put away sin by the offering of himself. And so the United Bible Society lexicon defines suntelea as end or completion of the ages, plural. But that doesn't really make sense if you're talking about the end of the ages, because that would be the end of everything. What it means is the end of one age and the beginning of another. So there's a juncture. The cross is the juncture of two ages. And that juncture has extended itself throughout history for 2,000 years now, and we're in it. That's why we're crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. 
crucified with Christ, nevertheless we live. And yet it is not us that lives, but Christ who lives with us or lives in us. And so this will get you to comprehend something that you hadn't comprehended before. The Lunida, L-O-U-W-N-I-D-A, two people, refers to it as a mark, a point of time marking the end of a duration. So Christ appeared at the end of the duration of an evil age and at the beginning or the inauguration of a new eternal age. Liddell and Scott often have a military backing to their definitions, calls it a combination of efforts. The word suntaleia then means a combination or the consummation of a scheme, says the Roman author Polybius. Joseph Thayer, using Romans 9.28 and Hebrew and Isaiah 10.23, defines the word suntaleo, related to it, to accomplish, to bring fulfillment, or to come to pass. And the idea, therefore, is brought out, in my view, in Hebrews 9.26, the end of one age, suntaleia, and the beginning of of the new eon or the messianic age, an endless age that consummates in the whole of creation in all of its times coming to live with the death conquering life of Jesus himself. All of creation is slated for eternal life. All of creation lives eternally. Trees clap hands, mountains sing, etc. And so Christ made his appearance on the stage of history to put away sin, that's all sin all at once, by the offering of himself once and for all. And he did so by becoming sin at the end of one age and the beginning of another. Now the Gingrich lexicon then defines the word agona. Here's the juncture of the ages. Here's the agona, the battle raging because the ages are contradicting. Agon or agona means athletic contest as Hebrews 12.1 deals with it. It means struggle or fight, as Philippians 1.30 defines it. It means, it can also mean an internal attitude of care or anxiety or concern that a pastor has for his church in Colossians 2.1. It can also mean agony or anxiety, which Jesus experienced on the way to the cross, Luke 22.24, and in Gethsemane. Agonizomai is the verb, and it means to engage in an athletic contest, or in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, or Luke 13, 24, 2 Timothy 4, 10, Colossians 4, 10, and John 18, 36, it means to fight, to struggle, or to engage in conflict. And so here's a verse, here's a passage that brings both together, the conclusion or the juncture of the ages and the agona. Here it is in Romans 13, 11 to 14. This to me is the central exhortation of Romans, and it defines the light that's on when we read Romans. We read Romans with the armor of light on and understand that we're being equipped and prepared, encouraged and heartened in a real ongoing battle. And don't be deceived, medals will be awarded. Romans 13, 11 to 14 brings the ages and the agona together in a single exhortation. Here it is, and we'll close. Now this, Paul says, and now this. Sometimes shows will have an advertisement and they'll say, and now this. Well, Paul says, and now this. 
been leading up to this, he says, knowing the time. Do you know what time it is? Do you know the time? You know what time it is? Well, it's 1120. No. It is already the hour for you to rise up from sleep. For now our salvation is closer than when we first believed. Now the night is almost over. The evil age, the temporal transient age, the night is almost over. The day is near. I picture it as the sunlight spilling over a hill, and the hill is Golgotha. The day is near. So put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That means awake not just to live, but awake to readiness to do battle. Ephesians six ten to seventeen says similarly. Let us walk in a way that's appropriate for daytime, he says. That means let's not be sleepwalking. Let's not be inattentive. Let us conduct our lives in a manner that's appropriate to the age that has dawned with Christ's resurrection and is about to come to its noonday brilliance. It's to walk according to a rule that Galatians 5, 6 calls faith working by love which is the rule of the Israel of God. Not with excessive partying and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery, not in quarrels and party strife, meaning factionalism rooted in group bias, rooted in turn in the desire to have preeminence over others, which is the primary lust of the flesh, the primary desire of the flesh is to lord it over others, and so the cure is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I started with it, I'll end with it. We call him Lord by the Spirit. Put on, he says, on the contrary, meaning instead of, instead of desiring to be Lord over others, Put on or submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, all caps. That is, for its desires. The primary one being the desire to have preeminence over others. The power of sin under the reign of death is put off. So the references to putting on the new man in Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10 in epistles that were written earlier than Romans, Paul defines and finally gives total fruition to the definition of what it means to put on the new man. The new man. Kine anthropos is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the new man. We put him on. The reference to putting on the new man in Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10 find their complete meaning here. Putting on the new man is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an act that undermines the impulsive desire of the flesh. Walking in the spirit in Galatians 5.16 and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ have the same effect and essentially mean the same thing we walk by the spirit by which we call Jesus Lord and we will not have we will not fulfill what the impulsive desire of the flesh Galatians 5 16 put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its ambitions and desires which are always self-destructive 
So either way, walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 13.14, they have the same effect. The lust of the flesh is defeated, satanic advantage is canceled, and the life that has conquered death is experienced. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity to proclaim your word. Only the Spirit can bring home the assurance that this message can provide. Only the Spirit can reach the deepest part of our personal, intimate being and relate to our true being, our true selves, as created in Christ Jesus. May we discover, therefore, ourselves as those who are created in Christ Jesus, those who are the children of God. And in discovering that, discover that we are known and unconditionally loved and totally secured by God through Jesus Christ.